Our sermon text is 1 John 5, 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I was really blessed by the singing this morning. I don't, it just sounded so full. It really touched my heart, so thank you. Let's, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, as we approach, may we approach knowing that we approach a living God, a God who speaks, who commands, who encourages, who loves. And may you speak through your word and may your servants, may we have ears that hear and hearts that respond. Holy Spirit, come to us now. Fill us that we might walk with our Lord. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Are you sure For someone who's prone to self-doubt, that is the worst question you can ask someone. Probably all of us are, to some extent, prone to self-doubt, but for some of us, that question, are you sure, can send us into a tailspin of self-doubt and uncertainty and anxiety. Your boss asks you to do something before the end of the day, you get it done, you send it to him or her, and they ask you, did you do it as I said you should? And you're like, yeah, are you sure? Well, I was. Now I don't know anymore. Am I here? Am I a person? Are we in the matrix? I'm not sure of anything anymore. Uncertainty can be debilitating, especially when you're at a crossroads in life and you need to make a hard decision and there's not a clear answer. And the uncertainty in that can bring our life to a standstill. We just sit there. What am I supposed to do? And then we also live in a culture that considers it somewhat fashionable to not be certain about anything. Nothing is sure. You cannot know if God exists. You cannot know what he's like. You cannot know if you are eternal. You cannot know if there's a purpose in anything. And of course, not surprisingly, therapists' offices are full because uncertainty is brutal. Now, there's much that God does not give us certainty about. This is part of the exercise of faith. Oftentimes, to know and understand, we must first believe. And that's not unique to Christianity. That's any worldview, any belief, any religion is true with Christianity as well. And although, there's, of course, there's evidence for what we believe, we don't take blind leaps of faith in the dark, we will never have indisputable 
proof this side of eternity. Nonetheless, there are things we can know with confidence. Perhaps not certainty. Certainty really isn't a Christian idea. When you look at the Christian virtues, it was never certainty. It's things like courage, conviction, hope. Certainty is a modern thing. But there are things we can know with confidence. And that's why John writes this letter. He wants the readers of this letter to be confident, to know, to be sure about who God is, about who they are, about how they can know that they know him, how they can have confidence in that. That's what John, that's how he concludes this whole letter. It's how he summarizes it here in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to Christians. He wants them to have confidence, assurance. It's interesting to compare and contrast 1 John with the Gospel of John. They're both written by the same uh, author, by the disciple, the apostle John. But in the Gospel of John, uh, he also has this kind of one-line summary at the end in chapter 20, verse 31. But there he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life. The Gospel of John is written to non-Christians to tell them about who Jesus is, that they might believe. But First John, again in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants them to have conviction, assurance, confidence that they know Christ, that they have eternal life. That's the whole point of the tests, right? The three tests we've been going through, uh, the doctrinal test, the social test, the um, uh, moral test. He's saying, look, uh, you know, you can know that you know Christ, by the fruits, because you obey Christ, because you believe in him, because you love one another. And of course, built within these tests is a level of self-examination. Do I do these things? And if I don't, it's cause for investigation, right? When you walk into your house and you smell gas, you don't just say, well, whatever. You should probably leave the house, but you should figure out what the problem is. And the same thing with the tests. But John's emphasis is not to to cross-examine Christians and convince them they're not Christians. He's writing to people he is sure are Christians. He's like, this is how you can know. Yeah, there's been this group that's broken off and they claim to be the real church, but brothers and sisters, you're it and this is how you know. Because you love one another. Because you believe in Jesus Christ. Because you are obeying his commandments more and more and striving to obey them. He's writing that we might have confidence And John concludes this letter of assurance by finishing with four specific confidences that they can have because they are sure that they have eternal life. And I'm gonna uh, describe these confidences as commands. He doesn't give them as commands, but you know, I'm preaching this, so we're gonna make them commands. This is the outline for us this morning. Because you believe in the name of Jesus Christ and therefore know you have eternal life, first point, pray with confidence. Second point, which is actually combining two confidences, but it's follow with confidence because you know you're from God and you know that Christ protects you. Those are the two confidences that go with the second point. And third point, know with confidence. So pray with confidence, follow with confidence, know with confidence. This is how John ends his letter to, to, to the Ephesian church. This is how he ends his letter to Vine Street Baptist Church. This is what he wants us to take on the road with us. So first point, Pray with confidence. Follow along as I read verses 14 to 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, 
we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John gives us a prayer principle here that in some ways is, is pretty easy to understand. It's, you can have confidence that if you pray according to God's will, he hears you and he'll answer you. He'll give you what you've asked for. It's not particularly complicated. I, you can say it quickly, but if you're anything like me, it leaves you with a couple questions. First off, how do we know what is God's will, right? If the confidence is that if you pray according to God's will, then how do I know what God's will is? Beyond the obvious, like, it's probably not God's will that you kill someone today. Okay, thank you. But all the, I mean, how do I know? Second question I have from this is, well, if it's, if, 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 if the confidence is that if we pray according to God's will, he'll hear us and answer us, why do we need to pray? Like, if it's God's will, it's happening. Do I really need to spend time prayer? Like, couldn't I be doing other things? So this is a hard, this is a complex passage. It's, it, we're going to have to work hard to think through this, but it's really important. Because prayer is essential to the Christian faith. As one commentator said, prayer is the essence of true religion, for it's the initial step from thoughts about God to assurance of God. In other words, prayer is the first step from thinking about God to actually knowing God. And so when we're dealing with prayer, we've got to get it right, and we have to think hard. So I have a couple observations on this prayer principle, and the first is that this obviously means that God will never hear a prayer for sin. Uh, a bank robber may cry out to God for success in his robbery, but we can know without thinking too hard that God is not going to hear or answer that prayer. It's not according to God's will. Sin is never according to God's will. So any, any prayer for the success of sin or that one might sin, God's not going to hear it. We can know that right off the bat. But it gets even more complicated because sometimes even good things are not in God's will. Sometimes we pray for things that aren't sinful or even close to sinful. In fact, they're good things that God has made or that we need, or, but yet it's not always according to God's will. And the prime example, of course, is Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he ask the Father? Lord, if it's in your will, take this cup for me. He asks for life. God does not delight in suffering or death. That's, there will be no death in heaven. To ask for life is a good thing. And yet Jesus' prayer is unanswered. Sometimes even good requests are not according to God's will. And that should be an encouragement to us, by the way, the example of Jesus. Because sometimes when we, when we pray for things that are good things and God doesn't answer it, the temptation is for us to think, well, it must be because God doesn't hear me or he doesn't love me or he doesn't care. But Jesus, the one who had his baptism, the father said, this is my son whom I delight in. Even Jesus had unanswered prayers. Of course, we can think of the Apostle Paul as well with his thorns uh, in the flesh. He prayed three times, and yet it was not in God's will. So sometimes even good things are not in God's will. And when we, uh, to understand this principle, so there's two observations, but to understand this prayer principle, there's really two truths that we have to keep in tension if we want to think rightly about prayer and if we want to pray rightly. And these two truths are this. One is that God does, in fact, answer prayer. Um, if we take the stories in the Bible to mean anything, it is that when God's people get on their face before God, things happen. When God's people cry out to him in humility and desperation, however we might think about election and predestination and, and, the, and how the God is above time, whatever, things happen. God actually answers prayer. That's the first truth we gotta hold in tension. Sometimes, we who believe in God's sovereignty 
Forget that. But God actually does answer prayer. The second truth we have to keep in tension is that at the same time, prayer is not snatching from God what he never had any intention of giving to us in the first place. God is not like a divine vending machine that if we put enough, you know, enough money, enough faith, we can get whatever we want. No, if we pray according to God's will, he hears us. And the way that we hold these two truths in tension is understanding that prayer is most fundamentally God's ordained means for giving us what he wants to give us. Do you get that? Prayer is, is God's ordained means. It's how he's created it to work that he gives us what he wants to give us. He doesn't need prayer, but it's the means he's chosen to use. And so, yes, it may be God's will, but if we don't ask, he's not going to give it to us. That's why prayer is still so essential. We can't just say, well, it's in God's will. I don't need to. No, no, no. It's his means. That's how he's going to give it to us, whatever it might be. Salvation for our friends, freedom from sin, growth in wisdom, insight into a situation. It's, it's prayer is God's means for giving us what he wants, but at the same time, it's not the means for us getting whatever we want from God, but it's how God gives us what he wants to give us. And this brings us to one of the deepest truths that we see in this prayer principle, which is that the most basic thing God wants to give us is himself. It's interesting, the way John writes this, it kind of makes you skip a beat for a second. He says, this is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, you expect him to say, he gives us what we want or what we ask. But he says, no, he hears us. And we're like, what? And then it's almost an afterthought. And oh, by the way, if God hears you, yeah, of course, you'll get what you want. But he's saying, this is our confidence that, that the, the God of the universe, when we pray according to his will, like our prayers come into his throne room, he hears us. We step into the presence of God himself. Oh yeah, and by the way, you'll get what you want, but you're, God hears you. That's the confidence. And I think that's one of the reasons why God ordained prayer as the means to give us what he wants to give us. Again, God doesn't need our prayers. He can snap his fingers and do anything he wants. He's God. But he ordained a means that requires us to come near him. And so that as we come to him in prayer with whatever the good things we want that God knows we want and need, as we come into his prayer, we begin, or as we come to his presence, we begin to realize what we wanted most of all was God himself, and that's what he gives us. So that's the, that's the prayer principle. And by the way, the, uh, just a, a, another side thought. This is why Christians and saints throughout history, when they've described heaven, they haven't described it as kind of a receiving God's eternal yes, as if the, the beauty and the blessing of heaven will be that God will just give us whatever we want. But it's always been that we'll see God face to face. Again, the ultimate goal of prayer is that we see and know God. And yes, we'll also provide what we need because he's a good and loving father. So that's the prayer principle. If we pray according to God's will, he hears us. We can know that he hears us and he answers us. Now, just a, a bit of practical advice here, and this is from Andrew Murray. He was a British pastor in South Africa in the 1800s. Wrote a lot on prayer. A lot of it's very helpful. But his encouragement is, is, is Christian, you pray to a God who answers. He will answer us. Why? Because he's a living God, a personal God. He's not a, 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 an energy force He's not, you know, God who's kind of abandoned his creation, but he really is close to us, near to us. He answers. 
And so pray until he answers. That is the prayer of faith. It's the prayer that prays until God answers. Now, God may not say yes. That's what the story of Jesus tells us in the Garden of Gethsemane. The answer may be no, or it might be not yet. But what Andrew Murray says is oftentimes we don't hear God answer because we pray once or twice, and then we get distracted and busy, and we forget. And then we remember six months later, and we're like, well, God never answered that prayer. And it's like, well, no, it's just we stopped too soon. And again, Jesus is the great model as he's praying Drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's in your will, remove this cup from me. He prays until the guards come, the soldiers. And that's God's answer. No, there is no other way. But Jesus prayed until God answered. If you pray, if you continue in prayer, God will answer us. That's our confidence. Pray with confidence. And remember that God wants to give us himself most, and he does that through prayer. Now, what's interesting, though, is that John gives us a specific application about this confidence. You know, pray with confidence. If you pray according to God's will, he'll hear you, and you'll receive what you ask for. But he gives us a specific application of how we should pray, and that's what we see in verse 16, 17, still under this first point of praying with confidence. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, but all wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. So John tells us we have this amazing confidence that if we pray, God hears us. But we're not meant to use that amazing privilege just on ourselves, some kind of self-absorbed concern for myself. We should use that confidence to love one another. Now, when you read this, before we can get into what John's actual burden is in verse 16 and 17, we have to ask that question, what does he mean? He talks about a sin that leads to death, a sin that doesn't lead to death, right? Because whatever that sin is that leads to death, I don't want to do that one. <laughs> Let's figure out what this means. And there's been ways Christians have tried to understand this. Um, within Catholic kind of medieval theology, this was used to draw a distinction between what they called venial and mortal sins, I'm not a Catholic expert, but I think it has to do with what can be expunged in purgatory, what cannot be expunged in purgatory. The problem with that understanding, though, is that the Bible doesn't create categories of sin. The point is not that there are some sins that are real bad and avoid those, and some that are like, you know, not as bad. I mean, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Every sin is, is a falling short of God's glory. So I don't find that particularly compelling. One potential possibility uh, is that John is referring to what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 31, where he says, I therefore tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And Jesus there is, is speaking to the Pharisees who are at that point uh, saying that the miracles Jesus had, had been doing were actually being done by the power of Satan, and so what Jesus is referring to there, this blasphemy against the Spirit, is a kind of um, deliberate, clear-eyed rejection of the truth. The Pharisees understood Jesus' claims, and they just said no, and they were attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. That's one possibility. Again, there were, you know, false teachers who were guilty of this kind of deliberate, clear-eyed rejection of Christ coming in the flesh. So there, it could make sense. That that's one, I think, likely possibility. But the one that I think best explains what is a sin that leads to death? What is a sin that doesn't lead to death? 
is the one that falls along with how John talks about sin in this letter. And that's why I find it the most compelling, because you always want to look at what is the immediate context. And John, when he talks about sin in, in, in 1 John, it's, it's, it's in the context of this, this second test of authentic faith, which is that if we're true Christians, we'll obey Christ. And if we're not true Christians, then we won't obey Christ. And if we don't obey Christ, that's evidence that we're not authentic Christians. But from the beginning, John is very clear that it does not mean that we will obey perfectly. We're sinner saints. And so he says in 1 John 2, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. When we do mess up, Christ is the one advocating for us. He's the one in our corner. And in fact, he's the propitiation. He's the one who's covered all of the God's righteous wrath against sin. He's the one who's covered all of our shame and guilt. He is our propitiation. We can trust him. So no, it's not that a Christian will never sin, but what John does say is impossible, though, is 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. What John is saying is continual, unrepentant sin is evidence that someone is not a Christian. That's how John talks about sin. And so I think what he says here, the sin that leads to death is the sin that goes on and continues unrepentedly. The person who just walks in it is not trying to fight it, is even justifying it. That's a sin that leads to death. Now, can a Christian commit the sin that leads to death? Or is that just evidence that they were never Christians in the first place? I don't think we need to solve that question to know that sin is dangerous and unrepentant sin is deadly. But that's not what John's emphasis is here. Rather, his emphasis is that our great confidence before God is that when we pray according to his will, he hears us, is meant to be used for one another's sake. And there is a marvelous promise here that when a brother or sister is struggling with sin, if you pray for them, God hears that prayer and answers it. I want to point out something. There's no qualification in the prayer principle, there's a qualification. If you pray according to God's will. It's not if you pray, God will hear you and answer you. It's if you pray according to his will. But in this one, it's, I mean, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. And the reason why it's a promise is because Christians not sinning is always according to God's will. That's... That's an amazing promise. What he's saying is that God's ordained way for a Christian to conquer sin is not through fasting. It's not through whatever kind of personal self-discipline. It's your brothers and sisters praying over you. And that prayer, God will hear, and he'll answer it, and he'll give you life. And again, one reason why we desperately need Christians, we desperately need the church. It is not possible to do this life, to follow this Christ on our own. All of us struggle with sin. That's just, you know, every single one of us does. Every single one of us has ways we need our brothers and sisters to pray for us. It's, 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 it's easy to forget that, right? When we walk in here on Sunday morning and we're all just, we're good, you, you all are a bunch of good-looking people. Uh, no one walks in here and thinks, y'all are a bunch of hooligans. No, you're, you know, uh, uh, well, I'm trying to think of words, you know, competent, well-adjusted, successful, good-looking people. Um, and it's, <laughs> thanks, Jake. And it's easy to forget, too, because, right, like, we don't, we're just not in the habit of, like, airing our laundry list of sins, and that's probably a good thing. 
don't, let's not take this in the way of like someone's like, hey, how are you doing? And you're like, oh, let me tell you really how I'm doing. No, no, let's follow social conventions. There's wisdom in not casting the deepest parts of your hearts before anyone. But I think also one of the reasons is because sin makes us hide. That's the nature of sin. It wants to hide. It doesn't want anyone to know what's going on. It doesn't want anyone to know what you're struggling with. And the danger of that, though, is you remove the possibility of the life-giving possibility of God answering the prayers of brothers and sisters praying for you. You must know, please know, there's no stain, there's no guilt, there's no shame that is beyond what Christ's blood can wipe away. That's just gospel truth. We, we stand, live, and die on that confidence. All that's left for us is to receive it. Christ's blood has paid it all. We don't need to do penance. We don't need to go on a pilgrimage. We just need to receive it. And God, in his wonderful mercy, has given us brothers and sisters who are weak in the way we are, who struggle with the same things we struggle with. And therefore, when we confess to them, oh, it's like, yes, me too. Maybe not in the same way, but yeah, I'm just as weak as you are. Let me pray for you. And God hears and answers those prayers. Now, on the other hand, if you're on the other end of that, that someone comes up to you and confesses a sin to you, the best thing you can do for them is not give them counsel or advice, although there's a place for that, but the best thing you can do is just pray for them and know that God hears your prayer and he answers it. And he'll use your prayer to give life. I think a very easy application from the specific instance of the confidence of prayer that John gives us, one very easy application is finding a brother or sister, probably someone of the same gender as you, it's usually wise, Find a brother or sister and just confess the sin or whatever you're struggling with right now, the temptation that is your struggle in this season and let them pray for you. That's an easy application. I encourage you to do that. And if you're the one, again, who's asked um, to pray for someone, know and pray with confidence, knowing that God hears your prayer and he will answer it. So that's the first command that falls from this confidence. Pray with confidence. For you know that if you pray according to God's will, he hears and he will answer. Second point is follow with confidence. As I mentioned really briefly, I'm actually combining two confidences into this command. Uh, They're both found in verses 18 and 19. And just to even add more complexity, I'm going to take them in reverse order. I'm sorry, but I'm the preacher, so I can do it, okay? So let's read, um, follow along as we read verses 18 and 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So again, we take this in reverse order. We actually look at verse 19 first. What is the confidence? It's that we know that we are from God, and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. John draws a really stark contrast here between those who are from God and the rest of the world. And to understand what John is saying here, we gotta remember that we interpret scripture with scripture. If we tried to build an entire worldview out of this one verse, we would have a very distorted understanding of the world. God made the world good. God made every human being in his image. That means that nobody is as evil as they can be. The image of God has been marred, it has not been erased. What that means is that 
outside the church, there's still goodness, truth, and beauty. And inside the church, there are still sinners. We've got to keep that in balance. But nonetheless, John tells us something that's deeply true, which is that at the end of the day, the world is in rebellion against God, and so it lies under the power of Satan himself. In other words, anyone who does not believe in the name of Jesus Christ, there's no middle ground. They're under the power of the evil one. But our confidence is that we who believe in the name of the Son of God, we can know, we can have assurance, confidence that we are from God. What does that mean? What's John's way of saying that we've been born of God? We are his children. He is our Father. How is that confidence? Well, if we live in a world where, again, there's divided lines between Satan and his power and the church, and we're part of the church, well, we should expect to receive pushback. We should expect to receive opposition. We should not expect fallen Christ to be a cakewalk. But our great confidence is that God is our Father. The Almighty God loves and cares for us. That means we can trust him in both the good and the bad. When we experience the things we didn't expect that are great and wonderful and beautiful, we give thanks because God is our Father and they're from his hand. But perhaps even more encouraging is that when we experience the unlooked-for hardship, pain, suffering, tragedy that everyone's life brings to some degree or other, we can still trust that God is our Father, which means in the midst of that, he'll never let us go. He'll never abandon us. He'll never forsake us. And it's never without a purpose. It's never pointless. God doesn't play dice with his children. This is the wonderful truth of Romans 8.28. God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Now let's just be clear, it's not always helpful when people quote that to you in the midst of your suffering, like, oh, I know you've had this tragedy, brother, don't worry. God works for everything. And you're like, well, thank you, but how do I get myself out of bed in the morning? That's my question at this point. So putting aside, when is it wise and pastoral and how we should talk to people, the wonderful truth in that verse is that when we stand at the end of time and we see with the eyes of God all that's happened, and we don't see our little sliver of time that we see now, but we see the tapestry that God has been painting. We'll see, oh, in that experience, it seems so pointless and hard and purposeless, but I see that God had a purpose in it. I see that God was working towards a good that was beyond my wildest dreams. And the good was worth it. It was worth whatever I went through. That's the wonderful promise that God is our Father. Nothing we go through is pointless or purposeless, but God is using it ultimately for our good. And so we can trust him. So follow him with confidence. Again, that's the point here. Follow God with confidence. No matter where he leads you, no matter what you go through, no matter what you experience, you can know God is your father. You can trust him. The second reason that we follow him with confidence, which is the second confidence in this point, that she found in verse 18, which is that Jesus himself protects us. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Why? But he who was born of God, that's Jesus Christ, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Again, John is telling us we live in a world that's at war between the church and between 
Satan and, 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 and those under his power. And, and so in a world, in warfare, it's a great comfort to know that Jesus doesn't send us his assistant. He doesn't send us his first lieutenant, but he himself is the one who protects us, who stands by us. It's a great comfort. But what Jesus protects us from is not necessarily physical harm, although he does protect us in that way too, but he protects us from spiritual harm. He protects us from sinning the sin that leads to death. And that's a great hope and a great comfort for weary sinners to know that it's Christ himself who fights for us, who protects us. Things like this. Um, Southeast Christian Church has a summer softball league. We've talked about making a Vine Street Baptist Church team. Didn't happen this summer, maybe next summer. I've played in it before, um, and it's a ton of fun. Imagine I was able to recruit the entire starting lineup of the Louisville Bats. Louisville Bats are a AAA baseball team, so they're not the major leagues, right? But they're like the highest minor league. And I got the starters to come play in our team. Um, that's, I mean, they're the best baseball players in the state of Kentucky, some of the best baseball players in the world, and they're playing at a high level, and they're gonna play for us. But I'm telling you, I'm like, you know, last time I played in this league, we went one and nine. We got beat 20 to nothing by one team. I just don't think I can go through that again. I can't handle the discouragement, the disappointment of, of going one and nine. I don't think I could handle losing 20 to nothing again. My pride can't handle it. My hopes can't handle it. I think you'd look at me and say, bro, you'll be fine. You have the Louisville Bats on your team. Like, you're gonna kill people. You're gonna crush teams. You're gonna make people cry. You're gonna beat them so badly. I mean, the, you're playing a bunch of middle-aged people past their prime who are just playing some pickup softball and you have the Louisville Bats. You're gonna be okay. You just gotta get on the field, man. And when you win, it's not gonna, be, it's not gonna have anything to do with you. It's going to have everything to do with the 10 other players on that field with you. That's what John is telling us. He's like, look, we get discouraged because we have sins we've been struggling with and we're not further along than we thought we were. And it's like, can I really pick myself back up again? I'm tired of doing this. I, like, I just can't. And John's like, Jesus is on your team. You just got to get on the field. And again, when you stand at the end of time and you look back, every victory you've had, you'll see it had nothing to do with you, it had everything to do with the fact that Christ was the one fighting our battles. We've just got to get on the field. We've got to get on our knees and pray. We've got to be prayed over by our brothers and sisters. We've got to pray the, the word of God. The writer of Hebrews calls something that's sharper than a two-edged sword which can pierce the heart discerning between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We just got to get on the field because Christ is the one playing for us. He's the one fighting for us. That's a great hope for weary sinners. So follow Christ with confidence because God is your father. Christ himself protects you wherever he may call you, whatever he may call you to. You can follow him with confidence. This brings us to our last point, which is know with confidence. This is verse 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is a true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
Again, because you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you can know that you have eternal life. And that means that you can know that you know the true God, that you have fellowship with him. I talked last week about how one of the ways you can think of eternal life as, as coming home. There's a deep longing in, in the heart of every human. We experience it sometimes as a sadness, as a longing. C.S. Lewis calls it a homesickness for a home we've never been to. And eternal life is finally coming home. Not that we find our home in full. It's a salvation that is already, but not yet. But we smell home. We've seen it. We touch it. We taste it. And most of all, we know where it is. We're going to our home. You can know that. I remember talking to a missionary uh, a few years ago who was in the process of raising funds. I've raised support before. It is the most exhilarating and the most terrible thing you'll ever do. And he was in the midst of it. And he had a family and kids, and, and he had had a kind of a timeline how long he thought it would take him to raise his support. And he had um, kind of, uh, you know, put all his eggs in that basket, and it was taking him longer than he thought. Um, and so he'd actually sold, they'd sold their home, thinking they'd, they'd be overseas by then. And, um, and for the last, like, four months, they'd been living wherever they could live. So living with family, they had a friend who was out of town for two weeks, he lived in that home. And they're just bouncing from home to home to home. And he said a couple weeks before that, his eight-year-old child, they're putting her to bed, and, um, and she just starts crying. She's like, it's like the 15th house they've lived in. And she's like, I just, I just want to go home. I wonder how much of our struggling in life is just an overflow of our souls crying that out. I just want to go home. And that's the confidence we have if we believe in the name of Jesus Christ. We've come home. We know where our home is. And it's wherever God is. And so you can be at home a million miles away from your family. You can be at home alone in a room. You can say with Jesus Christ, my kingdom, my home, is not of this world. And so like this missionary, we can leave our physical homes and we can go where Christ sends us. We can, because we can know with confidence we have a better home, a permanent home, an unshakable home. And since you've tasted of the real deal, brothers and sisters, since you've tasted of what home really is, you've experienced fellowship with God, you, you know him, don't settle for a counterfeit that's how John ends it. He's like, you have this confidence. You know God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. If it's true that the, one of the deepest cries of the human heart is, I just, I want to go home. Well, then there are going to be many things, people, events that, that promise home. Come to me and you'll find rest. Many things say that. And those are what the Bible calls idols. And we don't when you walk down Bardstown Road in Louisville, you don't see shops with golden statues out front. So we might think, well, there aren't idols in Louisville, but there are idols in every culture. Anything that claims to give the fullness of life that is only found in God is an idol. And John says, you've, you've tasted the real deal. You, you have fellowship with God, the Father, with his Son. You've come home. Don't fall for a counterfeit God. Keep yourselves from these. So in conclusion of this whole letter, beloved of God, if you believe in the person of Jesus Christ, you can know you have eternal life. 
And the way that you can know is by the fruit that he bears in your life. Because you've made a true confession. You believe that Jesus is the son of God who came in the flesh and died for your sins and rose again. Because you're obeying him more and more and striving in obedience, repenting when we fall short. Because you love one another. This is how you can know that you have eternal life, even in the times when it doesn't feel like it. And because you have eternal life, you can know that God hears your prayers. You can know that you are from God, that you are his child, he is your father. You can know that Christ himself is the one who fights your battles and walks with you every day. And you can know that you really have come home. And you've found, your soul has found its home and its final rest in the presence of God himself. Let's pray. Jesus, may we ground our lives on the confidence that we have in you. Help us not just to hear truth and pass over us, but may it pierce to our hearts. Only you can do that kind of a work. May all of us go forward today from this meeting with confidence, knowing that you hear our prayers knowing that you are our Father, we can trust you, that you protect us by the blood of your Son, that we've found a home in you. May we know that in the depths of our hearts and may it transform our lives. May we be a people who are called after your name. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.